when you find your life's work. It helps simplify your life. I don't have to save everybody in the world. It helps organize me and keeps me focused completely on this one problem I've decided to solve. Silicon Valley likes to say that it's making the world a better place. But that's mostly bullshit. The problems that most famous tech companies are solving aren't real problems. But in other countries, developing countries, there are entrepreneurs who are building things that are actually changing people's lives in very practical ways. That's what this podcast is about. I'm David Madden. This is The Revolution of Necessity. On this podcast, we share the stories of tech entrepreneurs in developing countries. These are people who are innovating in places where technology could genuinely make the world a better place. This podcast is supported by Omidyar Network. Omidyar Network is a philanthropic investment firm set up by the guy who created eBay, Pierre Omidyar, and his wife, Pam. On today's episode, I'm speaking to a startup that's literally saving lives. Every day around the world, hundreds of people die because they don't have access to safe blood. But there's a startup in Nigeria that's tackling this problem. Their platform allows hospitals to find the blood that they need for their patients and then have it delivered in less than one hour. The company is called LifeBank and its founder is Temi Giwatubuson. Temi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, David. Temi, it's great to have you here today. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. Now, Temi, you were uh, born right here in Nigeria, but you only spent some of your childhood here. When you were young, your mum won the green card lottery and had a chance to move to the United States. And you followed her a few years later. You were 14 when you moved to the US. So tell me, what was it like to move from a small town in southwest Nigeria to America at the age of 14? Right. It was a, a journey of contrast, I think. As you know, Nigeria is very hot, uh, very humid um, temperature. And I moved to Minnesota in in the height of winter. So we moved... So right in, there in the Midwest. Right there right? in the Midwest in winter time. Oh. So we moved uh, November. <gasps> and it was like winter was just starting. And I remember feeling like the the cold was attacking me because I, I wasn't prepared for the cold. I don't think you can ever be pre- well prepared enough for the cold. So as you were growing up, you really wanted to be a lawyer. Yes. And everything that you were doing at school yes. and after hours was yeah. focused around having a career in the law. Absolutely. What changed? <laughs> uh, Nelson Mandela is, is what, what changed it all. And, and Model United Nations. In 2005, I was a sophomore in college and I joined a group called Model United Nations and I fell in love with it. And then after Model UN, I became an African person. It was the first time since I moved to the U.S. that even be, since I was born, because when you're in Nigeria, you're just a Nigerian, you're not African, right? And then when I went through Mother UN and I got through the process of writing a resolution and thinking about the problems around Africa, I became an African person, right? And I think that was the first step. The second step was my brother gave me 
the autobiography of Nelson Mandela. And I spent that weekend just reading and devouring this book. And in Nelson Mandela, I saw the vision for the future that I wanted. I felt very African, but then also very Nigerian because his story was more a South African story. And I knew that I couldn't share in that story. But I felt like, okay, yes, I am a Nigerian person. I am of African descent. And what he tried to do for his people was what I should do for my people. Inspired by Nelson Mandela, Tammy had a blueprint for her future. I felt like I needed to be African, but I needed to be, my work for Africa would be in the United Nations. That was it. She finds a special master's program that will qualify her to work at the UN. I took all my classes in French because I knew to get into the UN, I needed a degree, a master's degree, and then you needed a different language. So did you I did, know any French when you... you I had taken maybe one year of French <laughs> in college, and that was it, but I didn't know much. I didn't know any French at all. While she was studying, Temi did an internship back home in Nigeria, an internship that would change her life. So the project had just started and they wanted to do a baseline survey of household service. So that's what I did for about three months, going from village to village, doing household healthcare surveys. Um, and that's where my life changed when I met Aisha. Whew. So one day, my team were going to a small village in, in Kano. Which is in northern Nigeria. Northern Nigeria. We drove in and... Um, there was a group of people sitting in front of the household. So there was a young girl. She had been in labor for a few days, uh, three days, and the baby was breached. So some of the baby had already come out. Um, the rest was still inside her. In a normal place, you can just, you know, do a C-section. So if you could get to the hospital, it's a simple C-section. Baby's removed, the baby leaves, the mom leaves, and everyone is happy. But a C-section isn't possible here. But they couldn't find a car because it was very far village. They couldn't find any way of getting her from the bed to where she could get help, which is the nearest town or the nearest city. The mother-in-law had mentioned that they were waiting for her to die because there was nothing they could do for her. They had done all they could. So I remember just feeling like she was me. That was a refrain in my head. She was like me. She grew up in a small town. She looked like me. There were smaller accidents in my life that gave me the opportunity to be somebody who could see Aisha and felt sorry for her. And I felt like she was me. She was me. It was an arresting moment. It was a moment that sort of forced me to see my privilege, to see how different my life would have been if these happy accidents didn't happen. And it was, it, it was a moment that really committed me to maternal health care. This was the moment that I realized at that time that this is what I was meant to do. So, Tammy, this moment has an incredible impact on you. Mm. How did you go about processing it? What, what, what came next? So, I stayed in my hotel room for three days. I refused to talk to anyone. Um, and then I just rallied and left. And um, I didn't process it. There was a part of me that knew that, okay, this is your work now. But also there was a part of me that didn't want to have this burden, right? I was young. I, I had a plan for my life. I was going to travel and, you know, be a global citizen. I would jump from one 
you know, plane rides or another. I would have this awesome husband, you know, who would travel <laughs> and you will always be doing, of course, you know, I would be like, I was going to be the next, you know, Kofi Annan, uh, the Secretary General of the United Nations. I didn't have any plans to have a crusade about maternal health care. Like, that was not part of the plan, like. You know, moving to Nigeria was not even part of the plan. Like living outside the West was never part of the plan. Um, so I didn't process it for a while. But I, I think in hindsight was because I didn't want it. It felt like a responsibility that was thrust onto me without anyone asking me if I wanted it. So I didn't process it. I ran back to back home to the U.S., to California. I finished my degree. Um Global health now became what I studied. So I went to WHO to do my research in, in, in Geneva. So I was there for six months. Here was like all sorts of people from all sorts of places in the world working to solve African problems, right? There were a few African people, but it, it, the leadership, you know, the structure were not, you know, African people trying to solve, walk through why Africa still had the worst HIV crisis in the world. And I thought that I thought that we could do good policy proposals. However, the work of actually building a healthcare system needed to happen on ground with people getting their hands dirty and doing the work. And a new dream was born. The dream was to come back home. Temi goes home to Nigeria. She gets a cool job incorporating public health messages into Nigerian movies. But Aisha is still on her mind. She develops a passion project to increase blood donations. It's called the 1% Project. Tell us about the 1% Project. Right. So I figure out three reasons for why women died in the developing world, right? Uh, the first one was postpartum hemorrhage. Where you bleed. Where you bleed, so you mm. give birth to a baby. And then shortly after, so postpartum, so shortly after you start bleeding, then you bleed, you bleed. And if you don't, if the, your doctors can't stop the bleeding and replace the blood you've lost, you will die. At that time, all I knew was this blood shortage. And I decided that what I could do is try to figure out a way of getting people to give blood, especially young people. So I started a small project on the side. I'd put like... 10% of my income every single month into this project. Um, going to one university after after the other and telling them about giving blood. But it's totally a side gig, right? It's not, Absolutely. It's not your main thing. Absolutely. So what made you give that up right. and focus 100% yeah. on these issues? The situation around my own childbirth was very similar to Aisha's story. Very, very similar. Even, even apart from the, the bed rest and the, all the problems, the birth story itself lasted 26 hours. Um, it was long, problematic. I got very sick through the process. I had a huge infection through the process. They had to do an emergency C-section. Mm. And that's what saved my baby's life and my life. And if we had not been... Um, where we were, we hadn't had access to this essential medical, you know, um, the medical products we needed. If we hadn't had access to the best doctors, to the best nurses, to the best medical team, I'm, I or my son would have died. And when I got back home, I realized that my work around maternal health could no longer be a side gig. It had to be my life's work. But before Tammy could focus on maternal health full time, she needed to figure out how. 
You know, sometimes you have this idea that I have to change the world, but how, how, how? So I needed to figure out the how. I talked to everybody that would talk to me. I would literally walk into a hospital and be like, so what's going on around blood here? Because I knew <laughs> it was always blood. But how do you solve the problem of blood? Is it always going to be, you know, um, blood drives? Uh, so I remember there was a day, it was one of the last minutes. you were talking to practitioners. You were, practitioners, you, yes. You weren't talking to random people about... No, 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 no. I would talk to hospitals, to, you know, government agencies. Mm. Anyone who would talk to me around, who, who knew something about, you know, this particular system, yeah. about maternal mortality in general, I would talk to them. Yeah. I had meetings with anybody who would talk to me about blood. And, and there, blood was one, there was one really important meeting, right? Yes, yes. There was a an incredible meeting... It wasn't really actually a very good meeting. It wasn't, it wasn't a meeting that you're like, wow, this is it. We were talking. He was actually trying to tell me not to do what I wanted to do. He was telling me all the problems that exist in that, all the ways that, we, you know, whatever it is I wanted to do would definitely fail and how this problem is going to be forever. This is uh, with a blood bank, right? This is with a blood bank. Yeah. So, so there's somebody who runs a blood bank. Yep. Yes. Yep. So I'm, I'm meeting with someone who runs a blood bank. Yeah. And during this meeting and he said oh yeah you know it was just really now the problems and then he said oh by the way yeah sometimes we have to throw away blood because you know blood only lasts six weeks I was like what you know throw away blood how do you throw away blood you know it's a and he responded to me and said yeah you know blood is a short chef life product you know it only lasts six weeks and, and you didn't know this right at I didn't the time. know this I didn't yeah. notice. I don't. I had. You've been running blood drives. I've been running blood drives. Like blood. all I knew was there was a blood shortage in Nigeria. Yeah. That's all I knew. Mm. A few days after that, my husband and my family, we all were going on a on a road trip. My husband is driving. He's in the mood. Is you know listening to his music, and I'm sitting down beside him in my own thoughts, and I started thinking about all the things I had learned in this last year around blood. If there's a surplus, and there's a shortage. Then you just need equilibrium. You need to have this surplus. The people who will see the surplus, and the people who have a shortage talk to each other, and then that's it. So I thought the best way to do that is to do a marketplace. Right? Why don't we have a, a platform where blood banks can list the excess products, and then at the same time have that information to hospitals, where hospitals can now request in real time for what they need. That way no one has to die. And that was it. And that was where LifeBank was born. So you've had this brilliant idea. Right. But you've also got a new baby. Yes. A pretty cool job. Yes. So what did you do? So I spoke to my husband. He thought, oh, that's a great idea. You could still be doing it you know, on the side. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay. Um, I spoke to everybody and everybody like, you're crazy. You have a fantastic job. But I knew then and there that I was, I wanted to try to be courageous. I wanted to try to do what I felt was supposed to be my life's work. And I had given birth to a child now. And I had, although I had responsibility to make sure that it can survive and go to good schools and, you know, have healthcare and all the, all the things that parents must do for their children. I also thought I had a responsibility to show him how to be brave. One person who encourages Temi is Bosun Tajani, the co-founder and CEO of CC Hub, a tech hub that has been helping to develop Nigeria's innovation ecosystem. Temi joins CC Hub's startup incubation program and gets to work building her marketplace. 
Okay, so you've had this brilliant idea, Temi. You're gonna yes. you're gonna create this marketplace yes. for blood yes. um, in Lagos. Yes. Now, marketplaces often sound simple, but in reality, they can be really hard to build. So, how did you do it? How did you put all the pieces together? So, um, did you start with the customers? Did you know the hospitals were going to be the customers? Right. So the first thing is I wanted to build a platform, right? Um, I So through the pro- process, we did it for about a year. Uh, it was just hammering everything into place. We realized that um, it had to start with the blood banks because we couldn't have hospitals come on the platform and not have any pints to buy. So it had to start with the people who would, the suppliers, okay. who would list their products. And was it hard to get the blood banks to participate? Or? It was hard. It right. was really quite hard. Even though they're throwing away their product. Right. Some of them was like, why would I give you my stock? They weren't clear what the value was. Hmm. They couldn't see if I was going to pull it off. That was the word. Can she actually pull off this idea? The idea sounds great. Right? A marketplace, my excess stock, I can sell it. I'm going to throw it away anyways. Why don't I make some more money you know, on the side, right? Instead of, instead of throwing it away. But they weren't sure you could actually but pull it off. But they didn't, like, why would hospital trust her? Who is she? Who does she know? She's not even a doctor. How did you convince them right. that you could do it? There's one thing about me, I don't stop. So if you say no, I go away, I come back. I remember there was a meeting where I told one guy, one, so a man, he runs a blood bank. I was like, if you don't do this in two years, you're going to come to me and beg me and try to pay me to get you on my platform. I was like, what? I was like, hmm, you're very confident. I said, yes, sir, I'm very confident. And then it's like, okay, I'll give you 10 bags. Was that the first yes? It was the first yes. It was the first yes. It was the first yes. And he didn't give me all the stock. He even refused to log in on the, pla- like, on the platform. Right. He just took a pen and a paper, said, I have 10 bags of O negative. I have 10 bags of O positive. I have this. So he listed all the blood types. Yeah. And, it's like, and I would supply it at this cost, at this cost. And he gave it to me. And that was the first. After that, I could go to the next guy and say, oh, you know, you know, uh, this blood bank is on our platform and they've already, you know, started seeing, uh, you know, an increase in demand. And like, really? He's on his platform? Okay, then I have to sign up. And that was it. It was like dominoes after the It was dominoes, one. right. But there was no risk to the blood bank, right? Because you no. weren't actually taking the blood away. No, you I wasn't. Were just, you just needed to give me your stock. Yeah. You know, so a lot of things in this market is people just get used to how things are mm. and are not interested in doing something different, right? At some point, you've been doing this, like, let's say he's been running a blood bank for 20 years. Sure. So he doesn't understand technology. He's not interested in technology. And it was just no no sense of, you know, innovation. And we're not interested in it. Cannot see innovation and how innovation helps him. Were the hospitals also hard to get on board? Or? No. Mm, okay. Actually, they were much easier. When you have a hospital, when someone dies, they're the one who sees the patient dying, mm. right? So they have a frontline view of the problem I was trying to solve. So they were on my team. So we actually have a business model where hospitals pay us, right? Mm. And that, that's been very, very easy. Did you wait until you had some blood banks on board before you started pitching yes. the hospitals? They would even ask, which blood banks do you have? 
to okay. see if I was I was just lying. Right? Mm. I remember I had a big meeting with an interesting hospital that said, literally, it's like, give me five names of a blood bank you have right now to just test if I was lying and I was just trying to sign them up before I sign up the hospitals. And I listed five, like, wow, really? Those people are working with you? I said, yes, they're working with us. And that was, and then they signed up. Tammy now has both sides of her marketplace lined up. The blood banks, who have the blood, and hospitals, who need the blood. She thinks she's all set. And then she discovers a big problem. So when I actually quit my job and started LifeBank, and we started at the incubation system, we were in CCO, Brooklyn, um, I, w- I thought we were going to be a technology company. All we were going to do is inform the hospitals where they can get the blood. That was it. The logistics part of what we do, the delivery part of what we do came later. And so the first order we had, just was just said, and we said, so when are you going to pick it up? And uh, it was, you know, they had to send an ambulance to go pick it up. Oh, wow. So yeah. you, you didn't build in... We didn't, didn't build, build the logistics. Into, interesting. Absolutely okay. not. It All came right, later. That came later. And huh. when we realized that it is a problem, we're like, oh, and the a logistics problem. the was expecting you to send it? Yeah. Ah. Or they weren't expecting. So normally they, so before Life Bank, they yeah. go pick it up themselves. Okay. To either they send a nurse or they send like a cleaner in the hospital or they send the hospitals. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, or, or they send the hospitals ambulance. Okay. To go pick it up. Yeah. That was a system that existed before Life Bank. Right. So wait, Tammy, tell us about this first order. So we get our first order and we said, okay, go pick it up. I think if I remember correctly, they send the, the, the ambulance to go pick it up. It was so delayed. They kept calling us, you know. So, you know, uh, the, the ambulance is, you know, stuck in traffic. There's a problem. There's this, there's that. Can you get us a new blood bank that's a little bit closer? We were able to solve that, right? Okay. We were able to solve them, sort them at that time. But then that was where we realized that it needs to be logistics as well. This is a huge deal. Lagos is a massive city. The traffic is notorious. And Tammy isn't just another e-commerce company selling books or clothes. So blood is a living thing, right? Uh, It has to be kept cold throughout its life cycle. Once it's been removed from a person's body, it has to be kept in a bag. And that bag has to be kept cold until it's transferred into another another person's body. Um, When I realised this, we realised that the delivery can't be you just put it in a box and you put it in a bike and you deliver it. Tammy's in trouble. She can't take another order until she solves this problem. Tell us, Tammy, about how you identified what the solution was, just the practical challenges of right. keeping the blood cold and right. everything. So I, I was just searching on, I literally used Google, right? <laughs> Entrepreneurs is where you, Google helps you. Um, I literally Googled how to move blood. That that was your search? That was it. How do you move blood and keep it cold? So that's where I found out that you you needed a blood box. So there's a specially designed blood box and there are special temperature strips for blood that could help you maintain the coaching. So I remember having a conversation with Boston. He really Mm. helped with this. And Mm. he said, I remember talking to him about this problem. And I said, I can either do it the Nigerian way or the right way. And he said... Timmy, if you want to build something that endures, you have to do it the right way. And that was it. And the difference between 
those two ways is you could I could have just gotten a bike and put like a lunch insulated lunch bag and put the blood in there that's what it's you like that's what hospitals use in the, in the ambulances that's what the market really is used to I could have just done that and I would not have had to, I would have had to buy just bikes right but I remember that moment Boston said you ha- if you want to build something that endures you have to do it the right way and I thought okay yes that's true this is a big investment Temi now has to buy medically approved blood boxes, Bluetooth padlocks, employ bike couriers, and open a 24-7 call centre in order to get the blood to the hospitals in the right condition on time. Was there any point in these early days where you're like, oh, this is too hard? Every day. Every day. It was... What have I done? (laughs) And you, you needed... You needed a lot of commitment, right? Because there were numerous challenges, right? You thought you were just going to be a tech platform. Software company. (laughs) (laughs) And then we became a distribution company. And and not not only just a distribution company, it had to be a 24-7 distribution company. Right. So because blood, especially Matana Healthcare, it's not a scheduled thing. You can't schedule when you deliver a baby. The baby decides when the baby comes. Sure. And so if you just give birth at 2 a.m. in the morning and you're bleeding by 3 a.m., somebody needs to get the blood to you at 4 a.m. And so it wasn't a normal job. It was, we had to run a 24-7 call center. And to be quite honest, the first six months, I was answering phone 24-7. I was the call center 24-7, the first six months of LifeBank. Tell us about the call center because yeah. you were hoping that you yeah. would be able to do this seamlessly. Yeah. But, yeah. You, you know, the, the, the blood banks yeah. and the hospitals, they're not the most tech forward organizations, no. right? So tell us about the hacks you yes. had to, tell yes. us about the hacks to make it all stick absolutely, together. Absolutely, absolutely. So we built this platform, this software, uh, this marketplace. Yeah. And it's an app, right? It's an app. Yeah. It's a so web app. In the in the Temi vision. Yes. In the car. Yes. Uh, on the road trip, it was meant to be, here, we're going to have this app. Yes. The hospitals are going to go on, ding, do, ding, do, ding. Do, 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 do. And order. These are your choices. Select order. Doop, you're done. The order is on its way. Perfect. Yeah. No, it wasn't. That was not the reality. <laughs> a lot of hospitals didn't have internet access. Right. That's what we found out. And also they were used to, before LiveBank started, their workflow was called the blood bank, right? Mm-hmm. We sensed that they wanted to continue calling, right? And we knew that the job of transforming them and pushing them towards the tech platform would take convincing. So we needed to build a 24-7 call center. So we needed to build a, a stopgap measure to sort of meet them where they were. So, Tammy, you said that it was you know, in these really dark moments, the thing that kept you going was this memory of being in this village, seeing this pregnant woman, um, Aisha, um, almost almost die. Have you, have you actually heard any stories of the impact that LifeBank has had on, on people? Because you're, you're running this tech platform and you're, you're not in the hospital. Yeah. yeah. Blood banks. Are, you, are you hearing? So we hear them. Um, every single day, every time we have another, we know that it goes to save someone's life. So we're actually working on a platform now. So we're collecting the first name of everybody we save and then we're putting on our wall. 
Uh, we're calling the wall of names. <laughs> so just the first name and the date of the day we saved their lives and then put it down so we can rem- remind each other of what we're doing and why we're doing it. That's cool. Uh, so that's a new project we're working on. Today, LifeBank is serving 170 hospitals. It's moved nearly 10,000 units of blood. They have a 24-7 call centre and three dispatch units that let them deliver within 55 minutes. How does LifeBank scale? Right now you're yeah. just in Lagos, mm-hmm. although Lagos is a very big city mm-hmm. <laughs> with a lot of needs. Yeah. But could LifeBank be a big business? Yes. So we like to think of ourselves as um, the the business of saving lives. A, a distribution, a medical distribution company that can move whatever the hospital needs moved. And so, do you do you think in terms of expanding the products that you're delivering? Yes. And expanding where the we areas you're servicing. Absolutely. So okay. we we're going to expand in those two ways. Um, in the next few months, we're going to start um, oxygen delivery. Right, oxygen is one of those things that kills about two hundred thousand Nigerian children every single year. So, Tammy, you've got a you got big vision for right. for for LifeBank, yeah. uh, a global vision yeah. for LifeBank. Now, you've just raised two hundred thousand dollars in in seed capital, um, and that was tough. That took a while. You had a small amount of money at the beginning, thirty five thousand right. um, dollars. It took about two years. Right. To get this 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 seed money, right. tell us about the experience of raising money because you know this this product could solve a problem right. in many other countries, right. but folks are going to have to folks with money are going to have to right. get behind it. Absolutely. So, what's it been like trying to raise money for 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 this business? I think generally um, it's been very very difficult. Right, we've I tried to raise. So I started raising about a year after we had started LifeBank, um, and it took me about a year to raise. I think partly it's two reasons. I'd never raised before, right, for anything in my life, not even grants. <laughs> so it was quite a lesson in how to raise, you know, how to sort of position the company in a way where investors were interested in investing. And it wasn't also always clear what LifeBank was. A lot of people didn't understand it, right? I'd have meetings. I was very lucky to get access to a lot of investors, but they wouldn't understand, is it a social business or is it an NGO? You know, you know, is it a business? Does it have returns? So I knew then and there that I needed to, you know, spend a lot of time making sure that LifeBank's numbers looked fantastic. We needed to move more blood, we needed to make more money, and we needed to show that we are a business, you know, and that we could give returns to the to investors. But at the same time, we knew that we had a social impact mandate. So a lot of investors, especially local investors, were not used to a social enterprise, an enterprise that makes money that also has social impact. Um, so we basically had to basically educate people that, yes, you know, it's blood, Yes, it's medical stuff, it's healthcare, uh, but it's also logistics. And you understand logistics, you know, you understand, you know, distribution, you get it. And you would easily invest in a distribution company. But just think of LiveBank as a distribution company, which our product happened to be a medical product, right? That was the first problem that I faced. And two, 
I think when I think about foreign investors and people outside, you know, investment circles in Africa, um, I think they have never met anyone like me before. I don't look like an entrepreneur. I look big. <laughs> I'm a mom. I am a girl. You rarely find people who look like me that can found companies that are global in nature. And I think that people were taken aback by that. And I think people always just second guess. Like, can she do it? Can she pull it off? I basically have to prove to the world that I can pull it off. And that, yes, yes, I am an entrepreneur. Yes, yes, there are loads of women who look like me, who are entrepreneurial, who are tough, who are courageous, who can do hard things, and who can sort of lean in and, 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 and get things done and, and win, right? Not only is it important for Life Bank, but it's also important for the world to see people who are like me, who are doing this sort of work. Tammy, when you were in college, you were you read the autobiography of Nelson Mandela, and yeah. you were really inspired by yeah. it. Who's inspiring you now? So I, I think I've st- sort of stopped looking t- to for inspiration from people who are known, if, if you will. Sure. Like I think I've started getting inspiration from people like Aisha, who just refuse to die. Right, I get inspiration from people like my mother who worked two jobs and raised six children. In the morning, she would go to work, um, you know, in Met- at Medtronic, putting together a pacemaker, hard pacemaker. In the evening, she'd go watch after people in nursing homes. I get inspiration from my mother-in-law who raised six children alone. I get inspiration from everyday women who are doing tough things that nobody knows about. Like, nobody knows their story, nobody cares about their story, but they still do these amazing, incredible things and, and they win and they do great things and they do hard things and, and they hold our community up. Um, and that's where I get my inspiration now. Well, Tammy, it's been a great privilege to be able to chat with you. Thank you so much, David. And it was a lovely conversation. I had a great time. Thanks for listening to The Revolution Necessity. If you enjoyed this podcast, it would be great if you could help us out. Please tell your friends and colleagues about it and rate us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. We'd also love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Medium, Instagram. All the links are on revolutionnecessity.com. Or go old school and send me an email, david at revolutionofnecessity.com. Thanks again to Omidyar Network for supporting this podcast. To learn more about what Omidyar does, Check them out at omidia.com. This episode was produced by Julia Alsop with production assistance from Ellie Lightfoot and editing help from Sarah Barrett. Our engineer is William Smith. Special thanks to Clean Cut Studios in DC and ARL Studios in Lagos. We'll have another tech story that matters for you next week. See you then. So I asked Tammy what her anthem was. We couldn't get the rights to the song, but here's her answer. I am a crazy fan um, of Beyonce's. Um, I love her, I adore her, and I listen to her music nonstop. Is there a particular Beyonce song? Wrong the World Girls. <laughs>